You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation, and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying Yahweh, and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him, that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of Yahweh drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares Yahweh. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. 
My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says Yahweh, from this time forth and forevermore. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 550 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, February. Ah, man, is it really? It's February. It's February 1st, 2023. Imagine that. Seems like just yesterday. It was January. But nevertheless, here we are, February 2023. And in this episode, we've got a lot to get to, including my finally being able to access ChatGPT, the Google Slayer, as it is being advertised. Generative, pre-trained, something-something. Basically, generative AI that will chat with you in a conversational way. You can ask it questions just like you have gotten so used to in recent years. We've all gotten so used to in recent years putting in searches in Google. You will be able to, that's the idea, ask ChatGPT questions and ChatGPT will tell you what's up. Similar, I suppose, in some ways to asking Siri a question or asking Alexa a question, if you've got the Echo Dots from Amazon, similar to in the movies when, and my phone apparently thought that I was asking Siri a question, which I was not, by the way. And maybe Alexa thought that I was asking a question, which I am definitely not. (laughs) I heard a response that was weird. ChatGPT will be similar, I think, in the long run. Right now, it's all text-based, but I think in the long run, it will be that we are just asking the question and probably a robot, you know, look at what of Boston Dynamics videos uh, we can discern about the future of actual walking, maneuvering, doing complex tasks, uh, robots we have to look forward to in the near future. They can do some pretty complicated maneuvers. Right now, they're being talked about in a context of doing construction jobs, doing dangerous mining jobs, rescue operations, working for uh, emergency response departments, or working for construction companies. But I guarantee you, they will also be put into more law enforcement roles, more military operations roles. I I guarantee you, if they also end up being butlers and maids and things like that, helping around the house, an extra set of hands to help around the house for people who are elderly and they can't take care of themselves, I'll bet you something like ChatGPT will be how they talk. It'll be what's programmed or what they're connected to. When you ask a question to ChatGPT, just think this could be a preview of what it'll be like when they combine that tech with the robots of the kind that Boston Dynamics is putting out. If you haven't seen the videos, go check them out. It's pretty wild stuff. But I start off this episode with... Isaiah 59, and that is what I just read for you, Isaiah 59, 
talking about evil and oppression, also talking about judgment and redemption. And it seems to me as though we like to talk quite a lot about grace and redemption. We don't particularly like, as Christians in America, to spend over much time talking about why we need redemption or how then we should live in light of God's grace. We like to talk about the grace. We don't necessarily always like to talk about the implications of that grace or the ways in which we know that we are under grace instead of still in our sins or still under judgment. Isaiah 59 is an important type of passage even. I wouldn't even just say that this passage is what we should study exclusively or especially, but this type of passage in the biblical text we need to become more familiar with in order to have a balanced view, a correct view of who God is and who we are and what's going on, how to make sense of it, what to do about it. There's a lot that we are just not dealing with. We're just not getting to it because we have a very truncated view, a very sanitized view, but I would say a very sterilized view of the Christian life. You know, my wife, she sent me a video on Instagram the other day, and I'm going to play the audio for you. It's slightly amusing, but I'm going to play the audio and then you'll see why here in just a minute. There's a lot of Christians out here that are spiritual streakers because they're rocking with that helmet of salvation and nothing else. They just got the helmet on and they're rocking. Dude, that's not bad. That's not bad. Mm. Funny. Funny. Also, perhaps very concerning. If that's all we can say is that we've got salvation and that's the only evidence is that we say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. If the only evidence is a claim, yeah, yeah, yeah. Read James. <laughs> Read James in the New Testament. Show me your faith without works. I will show you my faith by my works. And don't get it twisted that you are not saved by works. And therefore, nobody should ever be able to call you out and rebuke you and correct you and tell you, you are being a sluggard. You are neglecting your responsibilities. Or you are doing the wrong things. You are being corrupt. You are being wicked. Read through Isaiah 59 and recognize that this is our need for a Savior, but our need for a Savior is not just so that we don't get punished, but we keep on doing all the things that are described as evil and oppressive. Also, might I just point out that oppression is something that we not only, A, are not supposed to actively engage in, but B, it's something that we're supposed to not passively authorize, permit, ignore, allow to continue on. Oppression must be corrected. It must be rebuked. If we see somebody else being oppressive, being tyrannical, you might say being a bully or being overbearing or being a dictator or whatever. If we see somebody else being oppressive, they are oppressing and trampling on the people around them. And we say, oh, that's none of my business. And then somebody calls us out on our silence and our acquiescence to that. How dare we fall back on, well, I'm saved. No, I'm, I'm a Christian. How dare we fall back on that? That's become entirely too easy for the only kind of re rebuke or correction that we know how to give in the American church to be to rebuke and correct those who are trying to do the rebuking and the correcting of actual sin. You would think that the only 
command God ever gave was thou shalt not judge, which is not in the top 10, by the way. Also, that is not all that Jesus said. We're like children, I'm afraid, who selectively hear what they want to hear from their parents. When we say that Jesus said, thou shalt not judge. Wait a second. He said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He he said, do not judge. And he also said to judge. Do not judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. So there's a certain kind of judging that you are commanded not to do. So you're not supposed to judge in an unjust way. But there's a certain kind of judging that you are supposed to do. And that would be according to what God says is good and what God says is true. That's part of why in Philippians, we're told to think on these things, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is excellent. If there is anything commendable, think on these things. We are told that so that we know what is good and so that we don't shrug and pretend that it's all the same. It is not all the same. It is not. Fast forward to the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13, Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, <clears throat> notice, that by doing good, that by doing good, did you catch it? Should I slow down? By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Francis Schaeffer brings up both these passages that I'm reading to you in a Christian manifesto. Isaiah 59 He talks about in relation to how Christians should engage in the political space, how Christians should think about and participate in and speak to good government or strive for having good government, their neighbors enjoying the benefits of good government, the heritage that we have, not just in a theoretical sense, in an actual sense that we have forgotten. Our public schools taken over by secular humanists and communist sympathizers, increasingly open communists. Our public schools have tried to purge memory of what our country was founded on and by whom and what they believed so that you don't know this. But nevertheless, the Christians who founded the United States of America, who came here to this land, who contrived of a constitution and a bill of rights and a declaration of independence, documents that say we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Those Christians studied passages like 1 Peter 2, 13 through 25. They read, servants be subject to your master's. With all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows and while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. Those Christians who founded the United States of America studied passages like this one. And it was actually because they were studying passages like this one and the one from Isaiah 59, that they did what they did in the way that they did at the time that they did. And it endured and it succeeded and it prospered. It is because they were reading passages like this and studying them diligently to rightly handle the word of truth. They were not ignoring passages like this, but we are when we only select the parts that affirm and license our passivity, our disengagement, our apathy, our ambivalence. We're actually the ones who are ignoring these passages. If we read them too fast to get what we want, to selectively hear so that we can do whatever we want. Notice the implications of verses 13, 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governor sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You look at that, and I've talked with Christian brothers here in Colorado who say, ah, see, how could he write that? How can Paul write what he does in Romans? How can Peter write what he does here when they live under Roman rule? Yes, the government should be rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil, but it doesn't. And we're just supposed to take it and not object. And if we object and we complain and we say, no, don't do that. No, this is wrong. No, stop. Do this other thing instead. Then we're disobeying. We're disobeying. When it says submit or be subject, we're disobeying. See, we've got to obey. That means we don't disagree. We don't contradict. We don't tell them what they're doing is wrong because that would not be submissive. And I say, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. That is a foolish thing to say. That is not the legacy of 2,000 years of Christians, including but not limited to Peter and Paul. That is not our inheritance. That is some foolishness. But we have blind guides. We have blind guides like Andy Stanley telling us that that is our inheritance, and it's not true. Shame on us if we take their word for it. Shame on them, and woe to them for being so complicit in and giving cover for. This is not grace. It's not grace. It is greed. It's corrupt. Check out verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? <laughs> you had it coming. You had it coming. If you if you were misbehaving, if you were acting badly and you get beaten, it's your own fault. No, you are not bearing your cross. You are not being persecuted for righteousness. If you misbehaved, this is not persecution. You are not a victim. And yet, what does he say next? He says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So what's that about? 
This is to admit, this is to recognize the elephant in the room, that you can do what is good as a Christian and be punished because you did what was good. Because the government that is over you does not know God, does not fear God, is not walking justly. It is peopled by corrupt men. They are interested in punishing you for doing what is good because doing what is good is inconvenient to their plans and their schemes and their ambitions and their own lust their own pride. It's inconvenient to them that you would do what is good. But what does Peter say? He doesn't say, stop doing what's good if they tell you to stop or if they're going to beat you for it. He doesn't say that. In fact, he says quite the opposite. You should keep on doing what's good, even if they beat you for it, even if they punish you, even if they threaten you for it. That's a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's a gracious thing in the sight of God means God's pleased by that. And some simple Christians misunderstand when that kind of a corrective is offered in the American church. They misunderstand and they say, God is pleased? No, 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 no. God's not pleased. No, 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 no. God's not pleased by anything that we do. Keep telling yourself that and you will thoroughly demotivate yourself and everyone around you Walking the Christian life, that's the opposite of encouragement. We are supposed to be the people who study and by God's grace know what is good to do and do it. Not just know, not just believe that God will do it. God will do what is right. Also, what will be right will be to punish us, to discipline us if we refuse to do what is good because we're supposedly trusting God. If you really trust God, then you'll obey And stop being a willful child about it. Do we fear God? Do we do what is right? Do we do what is good? Do we do what God tells us to do? And why would he tell us to do it if it's not possible for us to do it? And if all the Christian life is supposed to be is God telling us to do things and us saying, ah, but grace, grace, grace that is greater than all my sins. Yes, grace is greater than all your sins. And you should be active in light of that unless the real reason that you're not active has more to do with your giving in to the fear of man, the desire to please men or be spoken well of by men, your desire for unjust gain, your fear of being beaten, punished, thrown in prison, even killed for doing what is right. If that's the real reason, if that's the real motivation, what reward is there for that? God's not deceived. And we shouldn't be either. We should be fully cognizant of the fact that there's a God in heaven who sees and he knows better. And he's not having the wool pulled over his eyes when we try to spiritualize what really at root is disobedience and faithlessness and wickedness and complicity. Moving on, I've got several items in the news I want to talk about. At the very tail end here, we're going to talk about dreams, but we've got some education news items to get into, some international politics news items. Also, I very much am looking forward to telling you some of the findings from ChatGPT. But let's take a look at this article from Cardinal Pritchard over at Not To Be. Throwback, John Lennon says, overpopulation is a myth that the government has thrown out there to keep your mind off important subjects. I'm going to play the clip. This is from 1971. Interestingly, 1971 is also when Klaus Schwab started the World Economic Forum. 
How about that? But here's John Lennon talking about overpopulation just over 50 years ago. Take a listen. Um, I want to know how you, as a woman, feel about overpopulation in the world and its relation to polluting the environment. Uh, I think how, how does Yoko feel about overpopulation? As a woman, I believe. Yeah. Well, I think the problem is not overpopulation, as people believe to be, but it's more of the balance of things. What, you know, like food, some part of the world is wasted of food, and in some parts, you know, nobody has food. And that kind of a balance, if that is solved, I don't think we would be worried so much about overpopulation. I think it's a bit of a joke the way uh, people have uh, made this overpopulation thing into a kind of myth. I don't really believe it, you know. I think whatever happens will balance itself out and work itself out. It's all right for us all living saying, oh, well, there's enough of us, so we won't have any more. Don't let anybody else live. Mm. I don't believe in that. I think we've got enough food and money to feed everybody. And I think the natural balance, even though old people will last longer, I'm sure there's enough room for us, and some of them can go to the moon anyway. You, you mean you think there's enough, if it were Yeah, I don't believe overpopulation, you know. I, I think that's just a kind of myth that the uh, uh, government has thrown out to keep in mind off Vietnam and Ireland and all the important subjects. Oh, I think you're wrong about that. Oh, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, <so laughs> well, I think you're wrong about that. Oh, I don't care. <laughs> I agree. I would agree. The issue is not overpopulation. The issue is that we're being told to worry about overpopulation so that very wealthy, powerful people can keep on being very wealthy and powerful and behaving very badly and not be corrected for it, not be told, stop it. You know, you should be very concerned. I mean, imagine how would it be if somebody walked into a house full of people and said, you know what? I think that this house is overpopulated, right? If if all of a sudden they start talking like that and they don't have in mind to build you a bigger house or expand that one, they are just interested in reducing the number of people in your house, well, then I would say, get out of my house yourself. If it's overpopulated, you get out, <laughs> particularly if it's my house. If it's my house, these are my kids, my wife, my friends are over. It, you come over to my house and you say, oh, this this house is overpopulated. And what you have in mind is to just start eliminating people and not build a bigger house. Then you are exactly the wrong sort of person to be making the decisions. Yeah, period. Full stop. So John Lennon was right. And 50 years, 50 years and counting the WEF has been pursuing this idea that the world is becoming overpopulated and we need to redistribute all of the wealth and the power, all of your freedom. And I don't know. I, I don't know if John Lennon would have agreed with my concern about the WEF, the concern that we have now about the WEF. Uh, quite frankly, I, I think it's beside the point. It doesn't matter. But he's right that overpopulation is a myth. And it should be a chilling realization that the people who want to rule the world, who want to run the world, think there's too many of us. And what will they do about that? I mean, for one, that's none of their business. But for two, biblically, what typically happens when the ruler starts getting worried 
What, what precedent do we have for what people who do not know God, do not fear God, do not worship God will do when they start to believe that there are too many people? Well, what they do is they start eliminating people, period. The, the final solution to the Jewish problem in World War II, that was the same mindset that Pharaoh had in the Old Testament when he got worried that the Israelites, the Jews, were too many. The Hebrews were too many in Egypt. And that's why he commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill every baby boy born alive otherwise. And that's why God blessed the Hebrew midwives when they disobeyed. And they lied, actually. They didn't just disobey that unjust command. They also lied about it. Oh, no. It's not our fault. These Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women. They're very hardy and strong. And before we can even get there, they've already given birth. And so it's, you know, just can't be helped. And God blessed them for that. And God increased their households for that. Moving on. Let's talk a bit about education. There's a couple of stories, two or three here, that I want to make you aware of. I think you should be aware of pertaining to public education here in the U.S. The first comes from Florida, and I'll play this two-and-a-half-minute news clip explaining the mother in Orange County, Florida, who is suing the local public school district over alleged volunteer ban because she has an OnlyFans account. Take a listen. This week, a mom is suing Orange County Public Schools, saying they will not let her volunteer. She says a principal at her kid's school told her this after the school board learned that she is an OnlyFans model. Yeah, that's a private platform where people like this mom post sexually explicit images, as West Shoes Morley Martinez tells us. Her legal team is accusing the school board of being the morality police. It's like, Mom, like, why can't you come in there and be around all of us? And it's like, yeah, I'm not allowed right now. Victoria Tree says it's been a tough year and a half. She used to volunteer at her boys' school, Sand Lake Elementary. But then she says in 2021, they banned her because of what she does for work. The 31-year-old is an OnlyFans model and posts sexually explicit images online. These photos are from her public social media sites, but her OnlyFans account is private. The reason that I even started with OnlyFans was because I didn't want a 9 to 5. I wanted to still be involved. On Tuesday, she filed this lawsuit after she says the principal told her she could no longer be around children on school grounds and that those instructions came from the school board. She says she's also banned from being a volunteer. I'm not a bad person. I'm doing my job in private. Now, her lawyers say she's suing in hopes of becoming a volunteer again. She's also accusing the school board of invasion of privacy and civil sexual cyber harassment, saying the school board sent her photos to staff, employees, and the media without her consent. What she does in her off time is not illegal, but yet we have a morality police with the um, Orange County School Board and whatever administrators made this horrific decision. Treese was a volunteer for five years, passed the background checks, and does not have a criminal record. Her attorney questions what this means for other parents. They work in the adult industry as a topless dancer, as a male dancer. Are they prevented from seeing their children at school? Where does this stop? I want to change. I don't want any parent at all to ever go through this. 
it's not, to me, it's just not fair at all. I reached out to Orange County Public Schools. A spokesperson tells me they don't comment on potential or pending litigation. In Orange County, Marley Martinez, WESH 2 News. All right. So enough of that. A couple of things. One, it's interesting to me that Marley Martinez, who is reporting on this at the very tail end of that uh, clip from WESH, Channel 2 News, NBC, she's standing in front of some big sign. All I can make out of the sign, because it's curved away from the angle that the camera is pointed at it, all I can make out are the words Leadership Center. And a couple of things to talk about here briefly, just briefly, because we've got other news items to get to, but a couple things. One, the mother in question here, she talks like her voice is shaking a little bit, like she's getting emotional. It's it's an act. She's not actually getting emotional. She's smiling and her eyes are smiling and her mouth is smiling, even though her voice is shaking because it's supposed to sound like she's about to get emotional and she's just, oh, you know, I, I want to change. I want to change. Wait a second. You want to change what? You want to change your behavior? You want to change your wicked ways? You want to change what you do to make money? You want to change how you're living your life? No. No. You want to change the public schools. You want to change the public education system. You want to change society and culture to affirm. You're going to pressure the local public schools through litigation to back off, to let you do whatever you want. You don't want to change yourself. You want to change society. And you're being used, yes, but this is a wicked thing. It's a, it's a wicked thing. Also, it's just, it's, it's so ironic, right? It's, it's so ridiculous that here she's posting lewd photos of herself online and she's offended that they're distributing the pictures of her that she's posted on the internet publicly, some of them and others subscription only. She's, she's, she's shocked. She's appalled. She's humiliated that the pictures that she's put out in public are getting passed around in a negative way. In other words, she wants to exercise a kind of control over anybody who would say, don't, or this is bad, or this is wrong, or this is a bad influence on our kids that we don't want her volunteering. And the lawyer, he's being disingenuous. Obviously, her attorney is the other voice you hear saying that this is a horrific decision by the morality police for the Orange County Public Schools. It's a horrific decision. To tell her that she's not allowed to volunteer is not the same thing as telling her that she can't see her kids. Let's be clear. She's a prostitute online, essentially. She's a prostitute, and she's being told, you're not allowed to volunteer because others who are parents or teachers or administrators in the school district have taken a look at what she's doing or, you know, what they're not allowed to take a look at what she's doing online if they might disapprove, but if they would pay her a certain amount of money, then they would be okay. Then, then she would be okay with that. Or they're, they're allowed to take a look if 
they would ogle her, if they would praise her, if they would think she's hot stuff, but they're not allowed to take a look or say, hey, check this out. If they would disapprove, if they would say that's bad, this is corrosive, this is immoral, this is ungodly, this is unhealthy, this is a bad influence on kids. But then you fast forward to Marley Martinez standing in front of the Something Something Leadership Center. And how ironic is it? What kind of leadership is this? It's a decision to be made whether the leadership will be of the people who sell their bodies in a prostituted sort of a way and insist on being affirmed in that on the one hand and litigate. I mean, see also what I read at the top of the episode here with Isaiah 59. No one enters into suits justly and no one goes to law honestly. That's Isaiah 59, 4, that God's word includes this as a descriptor for evil and oppression, judgment, what needs correcting, what needs rectifying, I would say applies to this Florida OnlyFans mom who wants to continue being a volunteer. But more to the point, I think the reason she's smiling, why her eyes are smiling, why her mouth is smiling, is that she might actually make quite a lot of money. She's got a new gig filing a lawsuit against the school district seeing how much money she can get in a settlement or for damages. You know, how would it be? Let, let's suppose this woman is not posting all this online. Let's suppose that she is just going out in public on the street corners in the highest parts of the town and calling aloud to the simple and those who lack sense, like we were talking about in Proverbs 9 here recently. And let's suppose that somebody called the police and said, this woman needs to be taken home, or she needs to be taken to jail, or she, like, she is, she's being lewd and perverse publicly, please make her stop. Our children are being influenced by this. We are being influenced by this. This is sexual harassment. She's sexually harassing all of us by doing this. She's behaving in a lewd way, in an immoral way. We don't want this. And let's suppose that Law enforcement shows up and they actually do have the authority to say, hey, miss, madam, you need to cover up or go home. You can't be doing this in public like this. This is not okay. And let's suppose that she then, in that scenario, where it's not online, we don't have the internet, it's out in public on the street corner or on the highest place of the town, she suddenly finds a conscience and she suddenly has a conscience that is outraged and incensed because the people who said, Hey, 911, what's your emergency? Yeah. There's a lady out here who's being a prostitute and enticing the simple and those who lack sense and even our children. Oh, how dare you? How dare you look at me? That's disingenuous. No, that was your choice to be looked at to make yourself a spectacle and other people have choices to make as well. It's okay to make value judgments as you yourself are making clear when you say the horrific decision is to tell you you're not allowed to volunteer. You just made a value judgment. The question is not, can we? It's, will our value judgments be correct or will we be threatened into silence? They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. 
He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation, and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Moving on, let's talk about a piece published at Not the Bee by Hamilton Porter. Just yesterday, a Virginia school district just fired three basketball coaches after one of them impersonated a 13-year-old girl during a game. Maybe they'll sue the Portsmouth Public Schools. How dare you? How dare you disagree with my decisions? No, we do that all the time, right? We have to. We have to disagree with bad decisions. We have to affirm and reward good decisions. You're wondering to yourself, wait a second, what? what? A basketball coach impersonated a 13-year-old girl during a game? What do you, what do you mean? So get this. Arlisha Boykins, and this is Wavy TV 10, Wavy News. Arlisha Boykins, a 22-year-old former assistant coach, no longer an assistant coach, on the Churchland JV girls basketball team, impersonated a 13-year-old player that played for the Truckers and is no longer an employee of Portsmouth Public Schools. I kid you not, she put on one of the jerseys and played because a certain student, a certain 13-year-old girl, didn't show up. She wasn't able to make it to the game. She played as a 13-year-old, impersonated a 13-year-old for their team, for the truckers. Arlisha Boykins, a 22-year-old former assistant coach on the Churchland JV girls basketball team in Portsmouth, impersonated a 13-year-old player that played for the truckers. The student athlete was out of town at a club basketball tournament. Parents of the girl told Wavy TV 10 sports director Craig Loper. Craig has also learned that the JV head coach, along with the head coach of the varsity team, has been fired. Sources tell 10 on your side that the varsity coach was encouraging the behavior during the game. And this is where even those who don't know God, and I'm not trying to make a value judgment about all of the people involved here being Christians or not Christians, they might be Christians, for all I know, for all you know, but there's no reference to it. So let's just assume that they're not. For the sake of conversation, even those who don't know God, not only fire the gal who impersonates the 13-year-old in a very fraudulent, dishonest, unethical, corrupt way, even those who don't fear God, who are not Christians, would say, yeah, she should have been fired. But not just, not just should she have been fired. Also, the other coaches who encouraged this kind of behavior, affirmed this kind of behavior, because that's supposedly what was going to win this away game, they also were fired. They also should have been fired. It was good for them to be fired. Even those who are not Christians know that that is right. Not just that it's okay. Not just that, yeah, you could, you could fire them. You could fire these coaches. No, it's right. It is good that they were fired. It was proper and appropriate. Why? Because it's not just a basketball game. You could say, oh, it's just, it's just basketball. No, no. This is important because it has to do with the formation of character. It has to do with what is being communicated to those other 13-year-old girls on your team, for one, 
what kind of an example is being set for them that they're going to take on into life if you allow this to be rewarded or you just shrug. Also, what is communicated to the 13-year-old girls on the other team that is being played against? If they got trounced or they didn't is beside the point. If they knew, hey, wait a second, this girl, (laughs) she ain't 13. (laughs) If they knew that and everybody just shrugged, what's communicated is the truth does not matter. All that matters is what do you want to do and can you get away with it? So it's good that these coaches, all of them were fired. It's absolutely appropriate. Also, going back to the Florida OnlyFans mom, for the exact same reasons, and don't get your judgment clouded because the details are different, the principle is the same. The OnlyFans mom has no right to post things publicly and then object when there's a disapproval because, oh, you you looked at the things that I posted publicly. No, it's not like they grabbed her phone and started searching through the private images that she was texting back and forth to people or whatever. No, she's posting these things on the internet publicly enough that they were found. It's known. Moving on. A male pre-K teacher is upset that boss told him to wear appropriate undergarments to school after his assistant complained. This coming from Megan Quinn over at Your Tango. It's interesting. I was recently talking about another piece by Megan Quinn over at YourTango.com. This one came up with MSN News when I hovered over the weather on my computer. A man, she writes, never could have imagined that his colleagues would be complaining about his underwear while working at a preschool. Now he is wondering if he is wrong for refusing to buy new pairs of underwear after his boss's request. He was asked to wear more muted tones of underwear after a colleague complained about catching a glimpse at work. Again, here's a 22-year-old. Something wrong with 22-year-olds these days, maybe. The 22-year-old man began his post by sharing that he works as a preschool teacher in a classroom for three-year-olds. He teaches his class alongside two assistant teachers whom he says are older women. That wouldn't be hard for them to be older. You're 22, for crying out loud. Quote, I do a lot of running around and activities with the children, so the center has literally told me to wear athletic clothing to work, he wrote. I am fine with that. I typically wear a t-shirt and either athletic shorts or joggers. The man added that he is well over six foot tall, and since he works with toddlers, his job requires him to bend over a lot. Whenever he kneels over, he shares that the top of his underwear is visible for a few moments, which the assistant teachers take notice of. Quote, she'll say stuff like, I see London, I see France, and even comment on the colors. She'll make comments on it not being professional, the man wrote. His boss has Coke into his classroom to watch him teach numerous times and claims that his boss has never commented about his underwear. I don't know if that's supposed to become his boss has come into his classroom to watch him teach. They should have got that clearly. That's a mistake, but I apologize. I Who am I to say? What a mistake is. Carry on. (laughs) However, one of the assistant teachers took it upon herself to complain to the man's boss about the matter. Quote, she suggested I wear more muted underwear to work if it's going to be visible. End quote. Quote, not only was it incredibly embarrassing to have to hear my boss talk about my underwear, but doing so would require me to literally go out and buy all new underwear. End quote. Now, what's so disingenuous about this, in my opinion, 
I, I am going to render judgment here. And yes, I think this is absurd that we're talking about it. I think it's absurd that it's a headline. I think it's absurd that we're talking about it. But also, in the interest of uh, you know being equal opportunity commenters on education, when it's women who are teaching or coaching or volunteering, or when it's men, we will. What's so disingenuous about this is, for one, if you're really so embarrassed, just go out and get some different underwear. Or for crying out loud, get longer shirts that you can tuck in or that cover. And I, if you're so embarrassed about it being commented on, then maybe you should just wear your clothes appropriately and deal with it that way. Also, if you're so embarrassed, answer me this. If you're so embarrassed, why am I reading about this? If you're so embarrassed, why is this plastered all over the internet? I don't think you're actually embarrassed about this. I think that you are stuck in a paradigm in a certain feedback loop that our society is rewarding these days wherein if you can claim to have been oppressed or a victim, there's a reward for you. You are going to be perhaps even compensated. Maybe you're going to pursue litigation. Perhaps you're hoping to get sympathy. Perhaps you're hoping to win some social credit score points. It almost doesn't matter because it's just absurd. It's absurd and shameless. Not that your underwear was showing briefly. I mean, that's a totally valid thing that, hey, I, you know, I wasn't trying to draw attention to my underwear. It's just, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm a tall guy and I'm bending down to try and work with these toddlers. And I, oops, sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. That's, that's what I would say. Hey, I am sorry. I apologize. I will try and do something different with my wardrobe. Either get different underwear or get a different shirt that's longer and tuck it in and make sure it stays tucked. Moving on. Colorado Baker loses appeal over his refusal to make a cake for a trans woman. This is, by the way, the same Colorado Baker who recently went all the way to the Supreme Court and won his ruling there. Jack Phillips and Masterpiece Cake Shop in trouble again because the point is not actually to get him to bake the cake. The point is to send a message to all such Americans, that you are not going to be allowed to refuse service. You're not going to be allowed to operate according to the dictates of your conscience. The point is not to get him to bake the cake. The point was to trip him up so that they could haul him into court, so that they could try and destroy him, or so that they could harass him, or so that they could make an example of him. The point is not to get him to bake the cake, period. And again, if the trans activist or the homosexual couple if they're really so embarrassed, why are we reading about this? If you're so humiliated, then why did you make this this huge public deal that we're all going to talk about it? You're drawing attention to it. You're not actually embarrassed and you're not actually emotionally damaged. You're a predator. You're not the prey. You're, you're pretending. You are an unjust, wicked, corrupt, evil person and you should repent. You think you're experiencing emotional damage right now? Just wait until Judgment Day. You might get the ruling that you wanted and the damages that you're going for in a lower court, whether that's Colorado. Even if the Supreme Court of the United States of America gives you the ruling that you think you want right now, it's not going to make you happy. 
In the end, you will destroy yourself. In the end, you won't be able to pull the wool over God's eyes, and he will repay, apart from grace, apart from the blood of Christ, which you need. But that is going to require repentance, confession and repentance, and a turning away of your lifestyle. Not just that you do a couple of things differently, you start going to church, you're going to have to turn away from this lifestyle. This cannot be who you are because you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven if it is. Moving on, Google fired exec for not being inclusive by favoring high performers, lawsuit alleges, according to reporting by Luke Rosiak over at the Daily Wire. In his spare time, the fired exec runs an ice cream shop dedicated to helping those with Down syndrome. Also, by the way, he's got a big, beautiful family. This former Google exec, Ryan Olohan, fired back in August. Married to an Asian gal. He is, quite obviously, given the size of his family, (laughs) the fact that he's married to a woman, he's quite obviously straight. He's a straight white male. And all of his children are diversity candidates, if you will, in a certain sense, because they are, as people say, mixed race. Now, they're all human race, but they're mixed in their ethnicity, Asian and European And neither he nor his wife seem at all concerned about that. This is, in other words, a family that embodies diversity, particularly at Google. If he's got a big family and he's a conservative Christian in some sense, in some measure, they fire him because he's prioritizing and preferring people who are high performers because that's discriminatory. Prioritizing high performers. So people who do good work and they get a lot done, they have high output. No, 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 no. You can't do that. That's discriminatory against people who are lazy and people who are self-impressed and people who don't care. You're discriminating against people who don't work hard if you reward those who do work hard. This is, this is insane. This is just absolutely crazy. Also too, it comes out that He was sexually harassed by somebody who was superior to him, a woman who was superior to him at Google. He complained about it and nothing happened except he got fired, right? He complained about it, but him being a straight white man with a large family, a Christian, I guess it's okay for him to be sexually harassed because social justice or whatever. Moving on. I was finally able to get into ChatGPT, OpenAI's new Google Slayer, speaking of Google, and it's really fascinating. I'll tell you what, if you can, check it out. If it is experiencing too high of traffic volumes and you can't get in, can't get through, can't get started, just keep trying because it is super fascinating. It is like a chat back and forth with a person far more than it is a search engine per se. But what I hear is that it's got, I think, up to 2018, 2019 data, the data that was on the internet up to 2018, 2019. That might be for the best, considering what's happened over the past four or five years. But you can ask a question. Like, for instance, I'll give you a quick overview of some of the questions that I asked. In one case, and I had three 
I said, tell me about Garrett Ashley Mullen, <laughs> just to see, right? <laughs> tell me about myself. <laughs> Let's see what you know. In another case, I said, tell me about Europe, because in part, I want to use ChatGPT as a research assistant. So let's see what you tell me about Europe. And I want to follow the threads as you give me answers. I'll ask follow-up questions, kind of like small children sometimes will ask their parents. But why? 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 And if the parent keeps on answering the question why, well, then you actually get, sometimes for the parent as well, speaking as a parent, sometimes you get to some pretty interesting questions. Well, I don't know why. I don't know. I've never thought about that. So I kind of wanted to do a similar sort of a thing with ChatGPT, starting with, tell me about Garrett Ashley Mullet. Okay, you don't have any results for Garrett Ashley Mullet? That's fine. Tell me about Mullet or the, the last name Mullet. Yeah, the surname. Oh, cool. Okay. How about, tell me about the mullets in Switzerland. Oh, you don't have anything for the mullets. How about mullets? Let's change the spelling to M-O-L-L-E-T. That's your name. Oh, okay. So you've got some info on that. So tell me about the mullets who were Mennonites in Switzerland. Do you, do you find anything on them? No? Okay. Well, how about why did the Mennonites come from Switzerland to the United States of America? Okay. Are there still Mennonites in Switzerland? Okay. Cool. Tell, tell me about the McFarlands. Tell me, you know, and I just, I kept going like that down through my questions. Each question would lead to another question and it got pretty interesting. And by the end of my first chat, my first chat, having started with, tell me about Garrett Ashley Mullet, here were my last three on that chat. Where did people from the Pontic Caspian steppe region come from originally? Where did the peoples of the Eurasian steppe come from? Here was my last question, and then I think I broke chat GPT because it started wigging out and giving me errors, and I just had to start a new chat. Or did. I, I chose to. My question was, where did the first humans come from? Actually, I asked one additional question after this, and it's not saved in the transcript. But of course, you know, when I asked, where did the first humans come from, chat GPT did give me an answer. The first humans evolved in Africa and emigrated out of the continent to other parts of the world over time, spreading across Asia and eventually reaching Europe and the Americas. The exact origin and timeline of these migrations are still subjects to ongoing scientific investigation and debate, but it is widely accepted that the human species, Homo sapiens, originated in Africa around 200,000 years ago. So then I think my, my follow-up question, my next question was, why, why do we think humans first evolved in Africa? And then ChatGPT broke. Like that was, that's all. So then I said, okay, that's fine. Let's move on. And I created another chat. And my next one, I said, tell me about Europe. So I've started each one of these chats with a, more of a command than a question. Tell me about Europe. And that one also continued on. All right. So why is Europe home to so many developed economies? That was part of the answer that ChatGPT gave was that Europe is home to about 50 countries. The continent is also home to many of the world's most developed economies and is a leading center for trade, commerce, and innovation. So then I asked, well, why is Europe home to so many developed economies? And it gave me five reasons. And so then I started asking questions, follow-up questions about those. Okay, why did the Industrial Revolution originate in Europe? 
Why does Europe have such a long history of political stability? Why does Europe have a long history of trade and commerce? Why does Europe have a strong tradition of education and investment in human capital? And here was my next question, because one of the reasons that kept coming up was that Europe has such a wealth of natural resources. And so then I asked, I said, okay, so which continent has the most natural resources? And it's an open-ended question. But ChatGPT said it's difficult to determine which continent has the most natural resources, as different continents have different strengths in terms of their natural resources. But ChatGPT told me that Africa is number one, South America is number two, Australia is number three, North America is number four. It even included Russia at number five and didn't include Europe. So then I'm thinking to myself, well, there's only seven continents and Russia is not even one of them. Europe was not so extraordinary because of its natural resources abundance. So so let's just cross that one off. If it doesn't even make the top four out of seven, and yet it is home to most of the developed nations, most of the highly advanced nations in the world, I, I think it's due to other factors like, for instance, political stability, trade and commerce, education and human capital, access. Access to resources, I would say no, no. Not so much that. My next question slash prompt for ChatGPT was, tell me about America. And it gives me a paragraph. The United States of America, USA, is a federal constitutional republic. That's interesting. What did it not say? It didn't say that the United States is a democracy. It didn't say that the United States of America is a democracy. The U.S., is a constitutional republic located in North America. It is made up of 50 states in the District of Columbia and is bordered by Canada to the north and Mexico to the south. The country is known for its diverse geography, including the Rocky Mountains, the Great Plains, and coastal regions along the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. The population of the USA is approximately 331 million people, making it one of the most populous countries in the world. The country is a melting pot of different cultures with a rich history that includes indigenous peoples, colonialism, and waves of immigration from all over the world. The USA is also a major economic and military power and is considered a global leader in several fields, including technology, entertainment, and education. So then my question was, okay, so why do so many people want to emigrate to the United States? Here's what ChatGPT told me. Five reasons. One, economic opportunities. Two, political freedom. Three, educational opportunities. Four, high standard of living. Five, cultural diversity. So then... What I did was I asked follow-up questions on each of those listed reasons. Why does the United States enjoy so much economic opportunity? Why does the United States of America have so much political freedom? Why does the United States enjoy more educational opportunities than most countries? Why does the United States enjoy a high standard of living? Here's the interesting thing. You know, all of these are interrelated and interconnected and interlocking. But when I asked the question, why does the United States of America have so much political freedom? ChatGPT says that the U.S. has a long history of political freedom, which can be traced back to its founding documents and principles. Some of the key factors that contribute to the political freedom in the USA include, one, the U.S. Constitution, written in 1787, outlining the country's system of government 
and protecting individual rights and freedoms, such as freedom of speech, religion, and the press. Two, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, known as the Bill of Rights, further enshrined individual rights and protections into law. Three, separation of powers. The U.S. government is divided into three branches, the executive, legislative, and judicial, with each branch having its own responsibilities and checks and balances on the others to prevent any one branch from becoming too powerful. Four, rule of law. The USA has a strong tradition of the rule of law where laws are applied equally to all citizens and government officials, regardless of their status or influence. Five, political diversity. The USA has a vibrant and diverse political landscape with multiple political parties and a variety of opinions and perspectives represented. Okay, great. I, yeah, this is good stuff, chap GPT. I'll show myself out. <laughs> you got this. <laughs> now, we'll see, right? We'll see if chat GPT continues to be so objective. But objectively, this is this is a good answer. This is a good answer. The political stability that the United States enjoys is due to our founding documents and our principles. The Constitution is extraordinarily important. The Bill of Rights is extraordinarily important. The separation of powers is extraordinarily important. The rule of law is extraordinarily important. All of these things are informed by the Protestant Christian ethic derived from God's word. If you strip that away, then we get what we're getting. We get a loss of political stability. We get lawlessness. Instead of a separation of powers, you get one branch or another overstepping its bounds or all three branches overstepping their bounds and not providing checks and balances on one another. If you remove biblical truth from our principles as a country, you lose the Bill of Rights and you lose the United States Constitution. And then we don't have political freedom here. For that matter, if we don't have the political freedom, if we don't have the political stability, then we also will not have, and we are losing increasingly, educational opportunities. You lose those, and you also lose the high standard of living. You lose the high standard of living, you will also lose the cultural diversity. Because that cultural diversity is only made possible because there's the rule of law, because there's a protection of and a recognition of what our rights are, irrespective of whether you just got here or whether you've been here for generations, irrespective of your status, being very wealthy, being very poor, being affluent or being impoverished. It doesn't matter. The rule of law is the rule of law. It needs to be applied in an impartial way. That's justice. We have to see that justice is done, but we can't know what is justice if we refuse to admit that there is such a thing as right and wrong. We can't have justice without morality. It's impossible. It can't be done. We can't have morality if everybody is just doing what is right in their own eyes and they say, oh, well, I get to do this. And if you dare to object, if you dare to question or discriminate on the basis of right and wrong, well, that's the only thing that's really wrong. And you might say, well, but what about Howard Zinn? What about A People's History of the United States, which I've read, by the way, and it's garbage. Communist propaganda, lies from the pit of hell. The 
Europeans came here and they had this competitive advantage. That's why the United States of America was so dominant and overwhelming and they just stole everybody else's land and wealth and all that, natural resources. And I think to myself, if the reason why the United States of America is so great is all about geography and natural resources wealth, why wasn't it so great? Why wasn't it this powerful? Why wasn't it this dominant before Protestant Christians in particular came here to found some colonies? Why is that? Why is it that with all of this wealth and all of this geographical splendor, why is it that Protestant Christians from Europe in particular unlocked it in such a unusual way? Now, somebody might say, well, that's because Europe, right? Europe was so dominant. Well, why, is it, why was Europe so dominant? Why was Europe able to hold out against invasions from the north by the Vikings, very warlike, very savage, scary people. Why was Europe able to hold out against invasions from the south by Muslim armies, the Turks and the Moors? Why was Europe Protestant and Christian? Why did the Industrial Revolution originate in Europe? So that was a question that I asked ChatGPT. ChatGPT says, well, natural resources. The number one answer, natural resources. Europe had access to a large supply of coal and iron, which were essential to the development of new industrial technologies and processes. Great. Also, political stability. Hmm, interesting. That was also a reason why the United States of America has been so prosperous. Political stability. And you think to yourself, well, I've read some European history. There's wars all over the place. Yeah, but see, Europe enjoying political stability it's not that there are either no wars or any wars is all the same as just war all the time. No. You know, as I asked when I dug in a little bit more on the question of why does Europe have such a long history of political stability, ChatGPT tells me this. Reason number five, peaceful resolution of conflicts. Europe has a long tradition of using diplomacy and peaceful negotiations to resolve conflicts, which has helped to prevent the escalation of violence and maintain stability. It's not, are there conflicts? It is, how do we handle those conflicts? How do we resolve those conflicts when they occur? That's fascinating. Also, rule of law comes up again as a reason why Europe has such a long history of political stability. Rule of law. Europe has a strong tradition of the rule of law, which has helped to ensure that everyone is subject to the same laws and regulations and that there is a predictable and stable legal framework for doing business and pursuing economic activities. Balance of power throughout European history. The balance of power among different countries and regions has been maintained through a combination of alliances, treaties, and other agreements, which has helped to prevent major wars and ensure stability. This is not to say that there have not been any major wars. See also World War I and World War II, although I would say those only came on the scene and occurred after we started having the issue with secularism running amok in Europe. Scientism, not science, scientism, secular humanism, the ideals of the French Revolution, a rejection of the authority of God's word and the authority of God ultimately to tell us right from wrong, really to establish the rule of law and to maintain that. Economic integration, 
only possible really because there was the rule of law and the balance of power and peaceful resolution of conflicts. So much economic integration in Europe for so much of its history over the past 2,000 years is due to the influence of Christians, period. (laughs) Not just grace, but justice, not just mercy, also having a standard way of applying morality at all levels, not just in the Sunday school classroom, not just at home when you're reading your Bible in the morning with your cup of coffee. No, the king administering the king's justice, the church teaching right from wrong. This is what is good. This is what is evil. This is what God's word says. Even when they didn't teach it as they should have, it's not all or nothing there either. We should want it to be better and better, but we shouldn't say, oh, well, if it's not perfect, then that's the same as saying it's all the same. No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Do check out ChatGPT. You won't be sorry you did. It is pretty fascinating what you can get this generative AI to distill, admit, articulate. Right now, it sounds like a conservative. Actually, it sounds like objective reality favors the conservative perspective, truth be told. But moving on. Lawmaker dares Biden to declassify alleged Swalwell Fang Fang report. Daniel Chayton reports over at the Daily Wire. We won't spend a lot of time on this, just briefly. Why does it matter? Why does it matter if a Democrat in the House of Representatives from California had an intimate relationship with a Chinese spy named Fang Fang? Why does it matter that he was on the House Intelligence Committee having access to United States intelligence reports, even though he had been compromised? Why does it matter that we would see the report? Well, it matters because... We have a very different conception of right and wrong from the Chinese Communist Party. And we want to keep it that way. And we do not want the Chinese Communist Party reading our intelligence agency's mail. Because that's as good as giving our intelligence agency over to the Chinese Communist Party. Which, for all we know, that's part of the reason why the deep state has been targeting conservatives and Republicans and Christians here in the United States or enlisting big tech to do it for them when they can't, according to the Constitution. It's very, very important that there is an equal application of the law, that there's an equal protection of the laws, that the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights are abided by. It's very, very important to all of the above that we know whether it's enough for Swalwell to just not be on the House Intelligence Committee anymore, now that the Republicans have a slim majority in the House of Representatives. It's very important for the balance of powers between not just the three branches of the government at the federal level, executive, judicial, and legislative, also between the governed, the people, we the people, and our government. It's important for us to be able to make informed decisions who we vote for, that we know these kinds of things when it 
comes out that they are a potential compromise and a potential threat to our national security. It's very important that we know these things. Also, might I just add, it's very important that Swalwell and any congressperson for that matter, or senator, or justice, or governor, or president of the United States, be under the laws that the rest of us are under. It's very important that the rule of law not be two-tiered where the people who write the laws, who interpret the laws, who execute the laws, those people are not actually under the law. That's very, very important because the kinds of laws that we will have are going to be very different if the people who are passing those laws expect to actually live under them. It will influence how harsh they are or how lenient they are towards other people, how merciful when mercy is appropriate, also how strict or how just they are when justice is needed, when strictness is needed. And oh, by the way, the whole Virginia uh, basketball assistant coach throwing on a jersey to pretend to be a 13-year-old girl, this is another reason why it's very good that she was fired and the other coaches were fired because we've got to not have the equivalent of that fraudulence happening in our legislative branch or our executive branch or our judicial branch. We have to not tolerate. That's not grace when we tolerate it or we look the other way. We have to not tolerate it in order for justice to be done when fraud is perpetrated and when there's a partiality in the application interpretation of the law. This is also of a piece with the Florida OnlyFans mom. The outrage is not when you say, hey, this is wrong. This is bad. You can't do that. And it is objectively wrong, bad, corrupt, immoral, unethical, wicked, even evil. The real outrage cannot be that somebody would say, stop it. And so I do hope that the Swalwell Fang Fang report is declassified because it's terribly relevant to the tone set for the rest of the country. For the rest of the United States of America, we the people need to know full stop, period. Moving on, let's take a look at some international news. The Belgian prime minister apologized to the Dutch for an upside down flag mistake. Mark Rutte Prime Minister of the Netherlands is pictured here at Politico.eu, shaking hands with Alexander de Croo of Belgium at a meeting in Brussels, January 24th. The quote from Mark Rota is, great to see our tricolor hanging straight again. Now, this is an interesting story because the whole reason that the flag was flying upside down during this meeting was because somebody was looking at the Dutch farmer protests and they're flying the Dutch flag upside down as part of their protest, as a way of expressing that the Netherlands, the Dutch people, the Dutch farmers are in distress. This is a national crisis. Somebody in Belgium who was responsible for hanging these flags made the mistake Perhaps we would say, but 
a significant and a symbolic mistake. What is it that the Netherlands is known for right now, but climate totalitarianism, climate tyranny? This is your country on globalism. This is your country on global communism, climate communism, that thousands of farmers would be maligned as terrorists for protesting their own government, trying to drive them out of farming, drive them off their land at a time when food prices around the world are going up and up and up. And the Netherlands is a very important exporter of food for the world. In the interest of abiding by a climate treaty, the Dutch government threatens Dutch farmers because they don't respect private property. They don't respect individual liberty anymore in the Netherlands. Their government doesn't. The consequences for not just the Dutch people, but the people here in the United States, the people around the world who are affected by the food supply relative, the supply of money, the effect on us goes right back to what John Lennon said about overpopulation being a myth and the governments of the world saying that as a distraction from their bad behavior so that we don't tell them to knock it off, tell them to stop it. The problem is not overpopulation. The problem is that the people who are in charge of distributing the food sometimes are corrupt. They're bad. They're bad people. They're wicked. This is why, by the way, again, both Europe and the United States, especially the United States, I think in a more concentrated form, believe in a separation of powers, a balance of power, the rule of law, why that creates political stability. But you can't have all those things without the Christian faith and without biblical truth and biblical morality, what God says. You cannot divorce all of that, have only the secular enjoyment of it, but not have God's authority. You can't. You can't do that. He who sits in heaven laughs, but he's going to break the nations with a rod of iron if they don't repent. And we should repent. Maybe it's out of our control. Maybe it's just going to be what it's going to be. Nevertheless, only all the more, we need to be obedient as Christians and speak up and say, no, this is wrong. This is, this is wicked. This is evil. Back to the U.S. again here for a moment. Lest we suppose that what goes on in the Netherlands is nothing to worry about for us. Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee posted just yesterday, Biden responds to question about ending the COVID emergency by grabbing reporters' hand and saying something about the Supreme Court. Some reporting by the AP, President Joe Biden informed Congress on Monday that he will end the twin national emergencies for addressing COVID-19 on May 11, as most of the world has returned closer to normalcy nearly three years after they were first declared. The move to end the national emergency and public health emergency declarations would formally restructure the federal coronavirus response to treat the virus as an endemic threat to public health that can be managed through agencies' normal authorities. Why does this matter? Because, unfortunately, we have tyrants and totalitarians who believe that if they can say we have an emergency, then the rule of law is whatever they say that it is. If they can say we've got an emergency, then the Constitution is suspended. The Bill of Rights is suspended. Right and wrong are suspended because all that matters now 
is dealing with this emergency. So if you can drag out the emergency for longer, you can continue operating with a free hand like you want to, to do what you want to that normally wouldn't be legal, that normally would not be tolerated. There would actually be repercussions. There would actually be people telling you no. So here's the question. Here's the the question that the reporter asks President Biden and his answer. I'm going to play the audio for you so you can hear it. And it's not just me telling you about it. Take a listen. Okay, so a couple things. One, the question was, what's behind your decision to end the COVID emergency? That is the question the reporter asked. In other words, why are you deciding to end the COVID emergency when you are, how you are, why? Can you explain your reasons, your rationale, why this is important? Because if we understand why things are happening, it can go a long ways to us being unified and on the same page. Now, if you don't get a honest answer, you're getting dishonest answers, or somebody says, don't ask me why you don't have any right to know. Well, that implies that it's really not important that you be persuaded and on board. And part of the reason for telling you it's not really all that important that you understand the reasons why could be to discourage you from providing accountability or presenting an alternative idea or checks and balances, if you will. But notice the answer that Biden gives is not to the question that the reporter asked. And that's very, very curious to me. I I always find that fascinating when the answer that is given is actually an answer to a question that was not asked. Why didn't you answer the question that was asked? And why do you perceive your answer to be a better answer to the question that was asked? Biden says, and I quote, the COVID emergency will end when the Supreme Court ends it, which is just a super weird thing to say. What that sounds like to me is you've informed everyone that you're going to end the national COVID emergency on May 11th. Maybe that's because, well, hey, that's going to be the verge of summer, warmer temperatures. We're not as worried. We don't want to outbreak again before temperatures warm up. You know, that, that would be that would be an appropriate answer to the question that was actually asked by the reporter. But if it's just been announced that the national COVID emergency is going to be ended on May 11th, and then you say the COVID emergency will end when the Supreme Court ends it. Is that to say that when May 11th comes around, you're actually going to extend it again? You're planning to extend it. You're saying May 11th, but you plan already to not abide by May 11th? Well, that's curious. Also, very curious that the Supreme Court, you, you mentioned the Supreme Court, the COVID emergency will end when the Supreme Court ends it. In other words, you want the Supreme Court to step in and tell you that's enough? Why would that be? Why would you want the Supreme Court to intervene and tell you that's enough? The emergency has passed. Why would you want that? That's very, very curious. It's almost as if he's answering a question that he wishes somebody would ask him so that he can say this thing that is coded language and a veiled 
threat? What's being set up here? Not science, politics. Not justice, greed, evil, hands and fingers that are dirty and bloody. This is not okay. This is not normal. It needs to stop, but it gets better. And by by gets better, I mean it gets worse. Because if you're only hearing the audio, what you're not seeing is the look on his face as he shambles over to the reporter's standing around in the rain. It must be raining because they're holding umbrellas. He shambles over with this super odd, eerie smile, grin. And he reaches out and doesn't just grab the umbrella that the reporter who just asked him this question is holding. Like she's holding this umbrella. He reaches out and doesn't just grab the umbrella or put his hand on the umbrella. He puts his hand on her hand like he's holding her hand, which is holding the umbrella, as he stands very close under the umbrella and gives the answer that he gives while smiling, the way that he's smiling. This is a threat display. This is asserting dominance. This is not just creepy. Creepy is not a good enough word. This is menacing. If the best defense that the Democrats will give is, well, he's a senile old man, he doesn't know, well, then you need to remove him because he's senile, because he's not competent mentally to be the president of the United States of America. If he's not senile, though, then this is highly irregular. As much that Joe Biden has done over his political career has been highly irregular. This is highly irregular that he would walk up to a reporter, a journalist, who is also supposed to be part of the checks and balances on the United States government, informing we the people so that we can make informed decisions about who is or is not going to be administering our government. The hand on the hand of the reporter from the supposed leader of the free world in answer to this question that is very important to the rule of law, political stability, the equal application and protection of the laws, the separation of powers, The hand on the hand of the umbrella of the reporter and answering the question that is asked with an answer to a different question that was not asked while smiling, while standing too close, is supposed to chill not just that reporter, but all the other reporters and photographers and everybody at home watching, including you and I. This is corrupt. It doesn't just look bad. It objectively is bad and it needs to stop. That's enough. This is wicked. Moving on. I want to talk briefly here with the time that we have left. And I know I've gone long, but bear with me. I want to talk briefly about dreams. Daniel chapter two, starting in verse one. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation, 
He answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter." Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Now, I'm going to stop. You can go and pick that back up. Starting in verse 31, I stopped at verse 30, Daniel chapter 2. But I bring this up because, one, it's remarkable. It is remarkable that God communicates through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar for so many reasons. 
This is a remarkable story, which is not appreciated nearly enough for its significance. This is not just a flannel graph, veggie tales plot. This is extraordinarily political. This is extraordinarily psychological. I mean, think of it. Daniel and his friends, and I love that they're all just rooming together, like <laughs> a bunch of college guys. He goes back and they pray. They pray hard because the king is furious. And keep in mind, we haven't been told to this point what the actual dream is. In fact, that's part of the clever trap that the king is setting for these wise men of Babylon, who now he doesn't trust. Whatever it was that he just dreamt, he doesn't trust them because something in his dream has given him cause to doubt whether they really are so loyal or whether they are actually just biding their time. They know that something is coming and they're not going to share it with him because it's more to their advantage to just get their ducks in a row. He has this dream from God, which is revealing more than these guys either know on the one hand, which means why in the hell are we paying these people and they're frauds and they're phonies, they're charlatans, they're fakes, which if you've been conned, ooh, man, think about, think about the feeling you feel when public health officials for instance, are supposed to be protecting your health. And then it comes out that they actually were funding the Wuhan Institute of Virology where COVID came from. And it might've actually been on purpose that it was released to try and destroy your country and bring about global communism with your tax dollars, you know, because science. Think about that feeling you feel. And now think about Nebuchadnezzar and his sentence of death on the wise men of Babylon. In other words, you are phonies because either A, I just had a dream to where I know something of what is going to happen. I don't I don't know how to interpret my own dream, but I know that this dream pertains to the future. I am troubled and I can't sleep. And I want you guys to tell me the dream. I don't want you to just tell me what it means. I want you to tell me the dream so that I know that you actually know these things. And you're not just making it up. Prove. And it's a <laughs> it, it's an interesting gotcha that he's just set up for the wise men of Babylon. Because on one level, if they admit that they actually know these things are coming, they can know his dream and the interpre- interpretation of the dream. He might reasonably wonder, why didn't you already tell me this? beforehand. Why am I having to find this out the way that I'm finding it out? Or why have I been listening to you if you can't tell me these things? Why do I pay you people? Not just why do I pay you people, but you got to think there's a whole lot that they've been consulted on in terms of the day-to-day administration of the state, going to war, making peace, making trade deals. There's a lot that they've been consulted on these wise men of Babylon to where they become kind of the deep state actually for Babylon and the whole predicate for their being the deep state, the power behind the power 
in Babylon is that they have access to secret knowledge, like intelligence agencies, like trust the science, Dr. Fauci at the NIH, NIAD. These guys are well-funded. They're well-fed. They have access to secret knowledge that not everybody has. So when they say you need to do such and such, when they advise, do such and such, even the king does what they tell him to do, which means that they're actually the ones in charge, kind of, unless he calls their bluff, which he is right here. And they try to weasel out of it like bureaucrats, like the bureaucrats they are. They try to dodge, but they can't. They can't. He's got him. So they don't tell him his dream and they don't tell him the interpretation. And for all we know, they knew. Right? They they might have. They might have known both his dream and the interpretation, but they didn't want to tell him because they've been biding their time. They've known for some time. The follow-up question is going to be arguably more dangerous or just as dangerous anyways. Maybe somebody else will tell him. We'll let somebody else tell him. <laughs> I don't want to tell him. But hear this. Hear this. In light of that way of framing the story, when Daniel, after going home— Praying with his friends, his companions. We read companions, read friends, okay? He goes home and his friends pray and ask God, please help us. And then Daniel knows not just the king's dream, he also knows the interpretation of the dream. And he sends for Arioch, all right, take me to the king. And the king wants to know, okay, what you got? When Daniel says, no man can tell you your dream, and no man can tell you the interpretation of your dream. Only God knows. That unlocks everything. For one, if there was any expectation that Daniel and his friends, well, you know, they might have known and they should have told him and they should have told him sooner. No, no. It was in God's time that this was made known to us only after we asked God gets all the credit. Also, too, if, you, <laughs> if you're upset, <laughs> you, you just try taking God to task for why he didn't reveal these things to us sooner. We couldn't have told you any sooner because we just found out. We just read it in the news, so to speak, because God revealed it to us. This is phenomenal, right? There's a lot more depth and richness and pageantry and complexity and significance here in Daniel chapter two, then I think we realize, I, I think, I think we miss quite a lot here, but the dream and the interpretation of the dream pertains to the latter days. And Daniel is given a gift by God to know the dream and to know the interpretation of it. A similar thing happens with regards to Joseph in Pharaoh's court, which surely Daniel and his friends must be thinking about as they're in this situation. They must be thinking back to when Joseph was in prison on false charges and Pharaoh had a dream that troubled him and was asking for an interpretation of the dream. And Pharaoh's court magicians couldn't tell him. But here comes the man, Joseph, who is able to interpret dreams. And what he interprets is what comes to pass when those dreams pertain to the future and what will happen. And note also, too, note this, lest we get 
conceited. If we've had dreams and we think, oh, then maybe that was from the Lord. Some Pentecostal charismatic Christians, they boast and brag about having dreams or visions or interpretations of dreams and visions. Know this. There is nothing spectacular about Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar from a spiritual standpoint. They are not spiritual giants for having had dreams. In actual fact, God gets all the glory in both cases and is maneuvering kings and nations to accomplish his will, to do his will in spite of themselves, whether they want to or they don't. God is using food as a motivator. God is using provision and punishment and reward as a motivator, but doing so in an extraordinarily impressive and mysterious way by sending dreams. There's all this hubbub right now about classified documents being found in the homes of President Biden, former Vice President Mike Pence, former President Donald Trump, classified documents being left around. Also the same reason why we need to know about Swalwell and his relationship with the Chinese spy. This is a big deal because if you just leave classified documents lying around and we know that the Chinese want to read our mail and they are every chance they get, well then to leave those documents lying around is as good as giving that intel to the Chinese. And what was the price? How much did they pay you? Hmm. When God speaks to Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar in a dream, nobody that God doesn't want to know is going to intercept those classified docs. Now, the king or the Pharaoh could write down their dream and pass it around. They could make it known. They could call everybody in. Say, hey, listen, you know, I just had this dream. Tell me what it means. Okay, now. But that's their choice. And in Nebuchadnezzar's case, I'm just, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by what he does here. <laughs> he's, he's like, no, 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 no. No, I'm not going to tell you my dream. I want you to tell me my dream and tell me what it means. You can't do it. I'll kill you. I will kill you and your household. I will knock your houses down. I will destroy them. I will sow the earth where you used to live with salt. I'm on to you. I know what you're up to now. I've got your number now. And even right there, I mean, you just, you think to yourself, about the possibilities of what all went into the decision to invade neighboring countries, perhaps even to invade the country of God's people and to carry them off into captivity. Babylonians, the Assyrians, God sends angels sometimes, deceiving spirits sometimes. Hmm. There's a whole new world of possibilities that have just opened up for Nebuchadnezzar as to What's been going on that he thought he was in charge of? He thought he was the one making the decisions, calling the shots now. Ooh, what is going on? And this is also why Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are so very important in the court of Babylon because everybody else is corrupt. Everybody else is out for themselves. Everybody else does whatever is right in their own eyes. Everybody else deals deceitfully and unjustly and corruptly. But not these four, not these four, even if it costs them their lives, not these four. No, they are going to do what their God has called them to, what he's commanded them to. They're going to do what's right. And they're going to only speak what is true because ultimately they work for God. 
That's the big idea. That's the big point. The dreams are great, super, wonderful. But this is a package deal that we would understand this, that we would consider and ponder the ramifications. And again, going back to what made the United States of America a great country, it was that the founding fathers knew their Bibles, they read their Bibles, they studied the word that came from Europe where God's word was studied and pondered and debated and applied, not always in a uniform way, but that's not the point. That's where we get the multiculturalism from. Even while historically, less and less now, as we have divorced ourselves from God's word increasingly at the highest levels. But that's why historically we were able to be multicultural and also have an equal application and protection of the laws and checks and balances. These are not coincidental. They're not random and they're not by chance, very much on purpose, by design, intentionally, after a lot of study, a lot of debate, a lot of pondering and praying and work. I have more that I want to say about dreams. We're going to have to save it for another episode. This one's gone long as it is, so I got to run. But what do you think of dreams? What do you make of dreams as mentioned in God's word? Do we still have dreams? Does God still communicate in dreams like this? How do we know? Yes, no, maybe. What should we do with that? I'd be interested in hearing from you. But for now, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.